Well, it's good to see everybody this morning, as always. The Lord's Day. Every day. Every day is the Lord's Day, right? But, yes, it's wonderful to come together in the congregation of God's people and worship together and affirm one another in the faith. And with this being said, we're going to continue our um, journey through uh, 1 Samuel. So please turn your Bibles today uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'll be reading from uh, verse 27 to verse 30. 2 Samuel chapter 2, 27 through 30. Reading from the authorized King James Version. Which reads, And there came a man of God from Eli unto Eli, and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Wherefore ye kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my habitation? And honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said, indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, Be it far from me, for them that honor me I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So basically, if we could sum up what God is saying in these four verses, he'd be saying, I hate false, fake, counterfeit man-centered worship that exalts itself above God. Anything that you love and place your affections on more than God is an idol. And everything that you do, say, and think ultimately stem from your view of God. It affects everything that we are. Worship is either you adoring and worshiping self or you worship God in spirit and in truth. Obviously, no single person has ever accomplished this perfectly except our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We exalt you, King Jesus. Over this day, over this hour, Lord, over this time that we spend together, we would ask you, Lord, by the enablement of the Spirit of God, Lord, that you remove any kind of obstacle or anything that would get in the way from us hearing what it is that you'd have to say to us this morning. Lord, I pray that you remove any hindrance from me. Lord, that you would enable me, Lord God, to proclaim your word. That you would grant me the unction by the Spirit of God. Lord, that we could come together this morning and be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we just commit this time into your hands and we're thankful, Lord, that you've allowed us to be here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God has always been 
serious about the way his people worship him. God has always been very precise. His pattern throughout the Old Testament was specific, detailed, and literally at times a blueprint from heaven. God is a very detailed God. He's very concise. He's very precise in the way he would have us worship his holy name. Look at Exodus 25, verse 40. God had said to Moses, And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. In Acts 7, 44, it says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the wilderness. It was constructed exactly as God had directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. And in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, it says, The place where they serve is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. And this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But as New Testament saints, we see these patterns of worship. Whether they be the tabernacle, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, they always point to the gospel and to gospel worship. And this is why Paul said in the book of Romans, chapter 116, he says, For I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, declaring that there was shame presupposing there is a shameful way of worship even today in the New Testament church. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And this is why I've titled this message this morning, The Essence of True Worship. The Essence of True Worship. Simply because I believe this is the hallmark of the Christian life. And this is what I believe our text is communicating as well. And this should very much so be a wake-up call. I'd like to show from our text this morning as well the dangers of false worship and why it is so destructive to our faith and the life of the church. Then I would like to encourage you by pointing you in the way to true, biblical, God-honoring, God-ordained, christ centered worship. The worship of our God should be the saints' highest calling, brothers and sisters. As Colossians says, Colossians 3, 4 says, when Christ, who is our life, when Christ, who is our entirety, our existence is Christ, who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What is true worship? Well, this is a question that was posed to Christ in John 4, 19. The woman at the well said to Christ, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on the mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where you, that one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you'll neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. 
We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. James also attempts to give us a description and a pattern of true worship in the life of God's people when he says in James 1.27, he says, pure and undefiled religion before God. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, he says, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Many believe that this unspotted from the world doesn't mean being stained by the world, but being hidden from the world and its evil desires. As 1 John 2.16 says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. The act of visiting Widows, the principle here speaking, is this action of visiting widows and orphans is not a ministry that will put you on public display. It's a humbling, it's a hidden, and its motives are pure. This is what we're dealing with. Because for us, it's better that we remain unspotted from the world than always trying to get attention to somehow affirm that we're something special. The Pharisees were great at that. But ministry to orphans and widows isn't going to get you the spotlight of the world. It's private. It's hidden. It's not glorious. But its motives are pure. It's hidden. It's, it's something that we do because we love God and we love others. We're not in it to perform. We're not in it to be seen by men. We're not like Eli's sons that were performance junkies just trying to look a certain way within the temple by totally abusing the worship of God. They're performance-driven, idolaters, sexually immoral. It's not like the Pharisees. Worship can be deceptive. And this is the very scary thing about it. Giving the appearance of holiness, but it's really nothing more than empty, dead religion. In Luke 16, 15, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed, right, among men, is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 2, dealing with the Pharisees' desire to give this appearance that they're holy by their prayers and by their fastings and by their giving of alms, he says this, he says that they did these things that they may have the glory of men. It's dangerous. Religion can be dangerous because at times you can become so fixated on doing things that you think within those doing things, somehow you're virtuous. Somehow it's earning you extra credit before God. And you know the scary thing? It hypnotizes us. It bewitches us. Because sometimes it gets us so fixated on this outward reality that we become addicted to it, adrenaline junkies, that we lose sight of ourselves before a holy God 
and we lose sight of what's true and biblical worship. Jesus said in eighteen in John eight nineteen when dealing with the Jews, saying that they knew the Father, but they really didn't. He said, "Where is your Father?" They asked him, questioning Christ. He says, "You do not know me or my Father." And Jesus said, "If you knew me, you would know my Father as well." You see, they were fixated on this religion, fixated on a misinterpretation of the law fixated on their sacrifices and their feast days. Jesus said you search and you search and you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. But they testify of me, but you won't come that you may live. You're addicted to false worship. Jesus pointed himself as the true worship of God. Jesus' performance was perfect because he was perfect. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. For no one comes to the Father except through me. This is the only way that we can have acceptable sacrifice before God. This is the only way that we can be accepted before God. And those that are truly converted and transformed by the power of God, their worship will truly be moved and directed towards God in spirit and in truth. In John 10, 9, 8, Christ says, I am the gate. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. This strange idea that we can worship God without Christ is absolutely blasphemous. This idea that there's others who are worshiping, worshiping God or worshiping the Father and they don't know Christ or they hate Christ is preposterous. A dead heart does not worship the true and living God. Anybody that has not been transformed, regardless of their nationality or their identity, is lost. God doesn't see the Roman Catholic and then the, the, the saved person as, 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 as a Roman Catholic and a saved person. He doesn't see a, a Jewish person and a saved person. He sees the lost and the saved, whoever they are. If you're unregenerated, you are lost, regardless of your identity. You need Christ. You need a new heart. You must be born again. This makes a true worshiper of the living God. For Eli, at least his sons, their worship under the Lord was really worship under themselves. It was all a show. It was counterfeit worship. They were fake. They brought strange fire into the place of the holy. They were not filled with the Spirit. They were filled with lust. Lust of the heart. Lust of the belly and lust of the mind. They despised the offering of the Lord and the Bible says that they treated it as a light thing. Imagine that. This responsibility that was given to them. This accountability to function in this arena. And yet, they lightly esteemed the most holy God of Israel. They trampled upon the blood of Christ. And ultimately, they paid for it with their lives. The ark was captured and taken away. And they lost not only their lives, but they lost the kingdom as well. Paul said in 1 Timothy 
chapter 119, he says, Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their conscience. And as a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Apparently, Eli was visited by a God-sent prophet. We read this in our text this morning. In verse 27, says that a man of God came to Eli. The Bible does not tell us who this man is, but the title here referring to this man of God indicates that this was indeed a prophet. The term man of God is used throughout the book of Judges and Samuel and Kings. So we know that this particular person was sent from God to deliver a message condemning the household and dynasty of Eli. To paraphrase, this prophet's message to Eli would, in 1 Samuel 2.27 to 30, these four verses, it would sound like this. And remember, this is the word of God himself being communicated through his servant. He says to Eli, did I not clearly did I not clearly reveal myself to you? Did I not choose you out of the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to burn incense and to wear the ephod before me? Did I not give you the best of all offerings? But no, it wasn't good enough. Your greed and lust has not only destroyed you, but it has destroyed Eli's entire family. Basically, God says, what you have honored above me must die. And it's a sad reality, even in our lives. There are things in our lives that we honor more than God, that we're fixated on. Our affections are driven towards these things. And we look at these things and we lightly esteem God and we highly esteem other things. When we go about our day and we do these things, we don't even recognize at times how faded we become and how much selfishness and obsessiveness and self go on in our day. Obsessed with self. God is completely absent from our minds and we think it's okay. We think it's fine. We don't understand the reality that God slew his own son because of the sins of the world. And yet we think we can continue on as is and nothing's going to happen to us. But we see here very clearly that God is extremely serious about the way that we worship him. Eli's dynasty was over and there was nowhere in scripture where God allows others to exalt themselves in his presence. Listen to what Isaiah said. Isaiah 42, 80 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. God says that no flesh should glory in my presence. I mean, this is a very serious situation. Then and now. In verse 29, the Lord said, Why do you kick at my sacrifices and my offerings, which I have commanded in my dwelling place? And honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, 
I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me but ever, forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Jeremiah was also a prophet sent by God with a similar searing message to his people. In Jeremiah 7.11 he says, Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal? Will you murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and burn incense unto Baal and walk after other gods whom ye know not and come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered to do these abominations. In this house which is called by my name has become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. The heart of man is full of abominations. Calvin said that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Isn't that the truth? Picture Paul, if you will, standing, up the, standing upon the great rocky hill in Athens, 60 feet above the valley, placed as he was in the center of a platform in the very heart of Athens, with its statues and altars and temples of deities all around him. He might well say that the city was crowded with idols. Athens, during this season of its existence, was in the period of its greatest depression, when Paul well describes his impression of the famous city. Lifeless, quiet, without trade, a city neither of merchants nor soldiers, full of lifeless objects of adoration, temples and statues, altars and shrines. He saw the whole city, the whole city was given up to idolatry. Petronius remarks how at Athens one could find a god easier than a man. Another writes how, is, how it was almost impossible for one to make his way through these idols. Pisanias states that how Athens had more images than all of the rest of Greece put together. Exonophon's expression is the strongest when he calls Athens one great altar, one great offering to the gods. Livy's remark is also noteworthy. In Athens are to be seen images of gods and of men of all descriptions and made of all materials. And these, brothers and sisters, are a great illustration of our hearts when left unchecked to the Lord God Almighty. Crowded in with idols. And I would really ask you this morning, before we just pass through another sermon, I'd ask you to meditate and to consider this morning where you are with the Lord. I'd ask you to just take a brief moment and examine your hearts before Almighty God. Are there things in your life unchecked? Are there things in your life that you purposely uncheck? Have you drifted? Have you moved away from the Lord? Is your heart full of bitterness this morning and unforgiveness and hatred towards another brother or sister? Or towards a family member? Or towards a friend? Are you fixated on the things of this world so much so it's literally strangled the very life of God out of you? Has 
Has your life become so crowded with idols that you no longer can even see God anymore? Have no desire for God anymore? No desire for truth? No desire for his word? No desire for prayer? Have we completely lost it in our age? You see, as technology continues to grow and they're putting before us a world so advanced that almost makes present life unbearable. They've created a world so advanced now with technology that literally they've done that to such an extent. They've created this, almost this imaginable world out there through technology that almost makes you hate your life. What could compete with that? That stuff makes our life bored. We're bored with life. Why? Because we see these ultimate extremes and we're stimulated at the very apex of our being to such an extent that life is boring. Reading the words boring. Going to church is boring. When I can be fascinated and entertained and amused 24-7 where the intoxication becomes like a drug addiction. Jonah said it right. Jonah eleven eight says, "They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy." Even Isaiah said it well in Isaiah one verse eleven. He says, "What to me is this multitude of your sacrifices?" saith the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings, incense. It's an abomination to me. Then in verse 14, the Lord says, your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me and I'm weary of bearing them. God is serious about worship. God is serious about worship. Does God hate the feast and burnt offerings in the holy days? No. He's the one that created those things. As forms of worship, as a type and shadow of what was to come. Christ was the fulfillment of these types and shadows. But the Lord had put these in, he institutionalized these things in, that they would keep their eyes upon the coming Messiah. That they would do these things in faith, knowing that there was coming a hope, a light that would shine in darkness, was coming. God was hammering home a message to Eli through his prophet that your ways of worship are an abomination. Go worship your kids while you still can, because in a few days they will die. True biblical worship, brothers and sisters, is of the heart. It's of the heart. And this only happens from a redeemed heart. Flesh-generated works from an unredeemed heart is foul and blasphemous to the Lord. But in Psalms 86, 12, the psalmist cried out, he said, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. Nothing special, nothing fancy, nothing tricky, not some gigantic mathematical equation of the sacrificial system. It was just a simple crying out from a redeemed heart to a God that he loved and he was devoted to and that he knew. 
And he says, I will glorify your name forever. In Jeremiah 31, 33, it says, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declareth the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their what? Hearts. And I will write it. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Here is a picture of the true worship of God. Romans chapter 3.31 says, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law through faith. Just think about that. The Bible says in Colossians that we have been made complete in Christ. See, Christ satisfied God perfectly. Every jot and every tittle. Because we're born sinners by nature and by practice, both. Christ was born sinless, without sin, 100% God, 100% man. Stood in place of the unredeemed and died for his people, died for the elect. Bore the full wrath of God upon himself, the Bible says. And then he went into the grave and three days later he rose from the grave, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And I'm going to tell you this morning, the only way you're going to escape hell, death, and the grave is by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. It's the only way. In Romans 5, chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 5, Paul said, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that was given to us. This is the true essence of worship. I like what uh, Dr. Matthew McMahon says in the Puritan mind in an article that he had written called Preaching is Worship. He says this. Now listen closely. This is interesting. He says in the act of preaching, this glorifying of Christ is the essence of his worship. Though at the same time, his gospel preaching ministers to needful people. It is here that the preacher's feet bring the good news of the gospel of peace. And while he's doing this, he acts as God's divinely appointed herald, reflecting the image of Christ as the living word in the message that he brings. The preacher ought to be exceedingly gripped with the sense that he is delivering Christ to the people through his preaching. If he is enthralled with the sense of this, then he is immediately conscious of the nearness of God. This nearness and this mode that the preacher travels through is the exact definition that God himself gives to those who worship. Leviticus 10.3, I will be sanctified by those that draw near to me. Whether that be the priest of the Old Testament or the preacher of the New Testament, worships God as he performs the duties God requires of him. And this would be true for any Christian in the outworking of their gifts. Preaching is worship. It is the vehicle that draws the minister closer to God during that hour. George Whitfield remarked by saying, After I had finished preaching in the open air, I was so overpowered by God's love that it almost took my life away. I was so overpowered by God's love that it almost took my life away. 
Preaching is a spiritual infection which ought to impregnate the hearer with the life of God in Christ. If the preacher is intimately aware that he is doing this through the unction and temperance of the spirit of truth, he is immediately aware that God is delighted in the work being dealt with. This brings God pleasure. The greatest way that we can worship God is to proclaim Christ. Because he is the highest pinnacle of our worship. It doesn't get beyond Christ. Nothing. He encapsulates, embodies, personifies perfection before God in our place. It's his preaching of his son. That is the greatest way Believers can worship God. It brings pleasure to God. Do we not want to please God? In 1 Corinthians one twenty one, it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, but it pleased God, brought pleasure to God. God received pleasure through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. What about the pulpit? It's special up here where I'm standing. And I believe there is a certain speciality to this operation of preaching. But listen, the question must be asked, is the pulpit important? Does the Bible say anything about a pulpit? Charles Spurgeon, in the church he ministered at Park Street, had a wooden pulpit. But at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he had no pulpit. Does this mean that in one place he, as a minister preaching the gospel, worshipped? And in another, he did not? Certainly not. The absence or appearance of a physical pulpit does not determine whether a preacher is worshiping or not. Look at William Farrell, who was a precursor to John Calvin. They called him the John the Baptist of the Reformation. It says he turned every stump and every stone into a pulpit. Every house, street, and marketplace into a church provoked the wrath of monks, priests, bigoted women, was abused, called a heretic and a devil, insulted, spit upon, and more than once threatened with death. Wherever he went, he stirred up all the forces of the people and made them take sides for or against the gospel. Philip Schaff, the historian, wrote about him, no one could handle his thunder without trembling or listen to his most fervent prayers without being almost carried up to heaven. A few application points to take with you this morning before you walk out these doors. To sum up what we've just read. Let us ask ourselves as questions today as the body of Christ. Where God had spoken to Eli, he said, Did, did I not clearly reveal myself to you? Did I not clearly reveal myself to you? Ask that question. Yes, God has. God has revealed himself to us. In Titus chapter 2, 11 through 12, it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. God has revealed that to us in this as we could say, dispensation of grace. I remember Jonathan Edwards says, it's one thing to sin against the law of Moses, it's quite another thing 
to sin against the grace of God. Jesus said, I did not, did I not choose you out of all the, or God says to, to, to Eli, did I not choose you out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, burn incense, wear the ephod before me? Is that true for us today? Did not God choose us in Matthew 8, 38? Jesus said, for whom, whoever may be ashamed of me in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he shall come into the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and that you should bear fruit and your fruit should remain so that whatever you might ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. Jesus was very concerned not only about, it, about his name, but his word. He said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words. It goes both ways. And the last point, did I not give you the best of all offerings? God said to Eli. Did I not give you the best of all offerings? And yet you sin like this before me? You allow your vile brats to continue in ministry and do nothing? You look idly the other way in your sloth. While your kids are an abomination before me, you allow this to continue and say nothing. Did I not give you the best of all offerings? Well, the Bible says that God gave us the best of all offerings. It's one offering. Not endless offerings in the temple or tabernacle, but Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.10 says, by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ has been sacrificed for us. God put him upon the altar and slew his son, the sacrificial lamb of God in our place, upon the altar of God, the eternal lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a higher accountability to this, you see. To look at this reality and to know this reality that God had slew his only son and yet we continue to remain in rebellion against God and yet still calling ourselves Christians. I like what John Newton says and I'm going to leave you with this last quote. If I ever reach heaven... I expect to find three wonders there first. First, to meet some I had not thought to see. Second, to miss some I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all is to find myself there. The greatest wonder of all, the greatest miracle of all, is the reality that I'll be in heaven. That will be the greatest miracle of all time. Greater than splitting the Red Sea. Greater than Samson slaying thousands with the jawbone of a donkey. The fact that Jeff Rose will be in heaven is an absolute, utter miracle. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for our time together this morning. Lord, we're grateful that you have clearly revealed yourself to us through Jesus Christ. 
through the gospel. Lord, we're thankful that you have chosen us, Lord, when we were running in the opposite direction. You captured us by your grace. And Lord, you did give us the chief of all offerings once and for all. And that is your Son and our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Lord, let us acknowledge this today. Let us examine our hearts today. And if we've gotten off track, if we've allowed things into our lives, that we would quickly repent. Because you are a gracious and holy and loving and merciful Father. Yes. For this I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.